You're listening to Toolbox of the Trades, brought to you by Service Titan, a podcast for top service professionals where we interview leaders for their best tips and tricks of the trades. Learn how industry trailblazers stay ahead of the competition and how you too can be at the forefront of an industry. Let's jump in. Hello, contractors, and welcome to the Toolbox for the Trades. Today's guest is Al Levy, author of The Seven Power Contractor. I first heard about Al from Tommy Mello, Service Titan customer and former guest of this podcast. Then I heard about Al from Ellen Rohr, Service Titan customer and former guest of this podcast. Eventually, it got to a point where I was hearing such great things about Al, I had to interview him. We talked about which systems contractors need to put in place in order to stop being a slave to their employees and their company. We also dived into the foundations of the seven powers Al coaches in his book and to his clients. If you want access to Al's jumpstart guide for the seven power contractor, visit servicetitan.com slash Al or click the link in our show notes. Enjoy. Al Levy, welcome to the Toolbox for the Trades. Hey, hey, hey everybody. Uh, how are you doing today? I am doing wonderful. It's only going to be 111 out here in Arizona, so it's pretty nice. <laughs> pretty nice. You know, it's a sensible 111 degrees. Always just a nice day. It's probably really good for a noon walk, I would yes, think. Yes, exactly. You know, preferably though, four o'clock, because that is the, hard, the hottest part of the day, Jackie. Oof. So that's really when you want to walk. <laughs> oh, well, that's good to know. Next time I visit Arizona, I'll be sure to take advantage yes. of that. Yes, um, so we are recording this for season two of Toolbox for the Trades, and we're at the beginning of the summer. And I kind of know about you already. I know your story. You, I've gotten, I was introduced to you by Tommy Mello, who was one of our very first guests on Toolbox for the Trades. And you also have a rich relationship with Ellen Rohr, who was also a guest on Toolbox for the Trades season one. So I'm so excited Two, two people have verified your stupendous reputation. So I'm so excited to have you on as a guest. So I'm going to start off the way I always kick off, which is why don't you tell the folks listening at home how you got into the trades? Well, um, I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth and uh, the way my friends tell me. And I said, <laughs> yes, but mine was covered with fuel oil because my family was in the fuel oil business. And that's where we started in Long Island, New York. And I've been told that I have a little bit of my New York accent after living here 20 years in Arizona. So yes, I uh, grew up in a New York City Union shop. Um, actually started my grandfather's gas station in 1936. And then my dad and my uncle went off to do the fuel oil business, bought the war, came back, picked up you know things, and they really grew it out. And then myself and my brothers arrived, my two older brothers. And uh, so for 26 years full time, I was working in a what was a heating oil, but for those who don't know, heating oil around the country is like propane. And so um, I realized that, you know, we were leaving too much on the table and at risk of losing our own customers. So my move was to push us into plumbing, gas heating, air conditioning. And today we also do electrical at my shop. And I'm proud to say my middle brother is still there with his son, my nephew. So we have the fourth generation. And you really can't do that, Jackie, well if you don't have systems. So that's what we're all about. Nice. And what's the name of the shop? It's OSI is the fuel oil comfort specialist is the plumbing, gas, heating, air conditioning, electrical shop. And where in Long Island do they operate out of? An area called Oceanside. So for those who don't know, if you get to JFK, Air, JFK Airport, just go south to the Atlantic Ocean. We're about there. 
Got it. And uh, I will encourage the listeners to also see if my New York accent comes out while talking to Al, uh, to Al, because I am a accent chameleon. Uh, people have told me this before, and I'm from Queens, so I'm very familiar where you, um, where your company essentially provided service. Throughout college, I catered a fair share of bar and bat mitzvahs around <laughs> Long Island. Uh, very familiar with Oceanside. Uh, okay, so moving in. So you said that it was a heat and oil, it was a heat oil business, so the propane business. And it was your job to, you know, you kind of, once you got into the family business, you identified areas of opportunity. You said you were leaving too much on the table. By too much, do you mean money? Yes. And also, what was happening is, uh, as I share with my older brothers, it's always weird because, you know, you're the youngest brother in the stacking order, mm-hmm. but I was always kind of the mover and shaker. And, you know, to the credit of my older brothers and my dad, for that matter, they let me, you know, look ahead, plan ahead and, you know, goes this way. And what we realized is if we didn't do these other trades, we were going to lose the basement and we were not good with that. And so that's what really was a motivating factor. I had also joined C2000 uh, years ago, and that's where the relationship with Ellen started back in the early 90s. And uh, having attended there, I realized, whoa, you know what? We've got to get this stuff you know, together. And that was really a big thing for me to make sure that we did that. And so that was really kind of the, the essence of it. I had learned a lot. And C2000, of course, is next up today. And uh, it's always good to speak with people who you don't compete with. Otherwise, you're always swimming in the same little pool, if you know what I mean, Jackie. Oh, totally. Yeah, it really was very helpful. And the other part of the story here that, uh, I, you know, in a family business and guys who are in the family business out there will know what I'm talking about. I said I really came into the business, you know, when I was 21, but that's not true. <laughs> By the time I was eight, you know, I was sweeping baskets. I was, uh, you know, working on trucks as a helper. My older brothers felt my dad took care of the baby because I got a truck that had heat in it and they did not. <laughs> so we were along. they were coddling me because I had heat in my truck. <laughs> as a helper. <laughs> so I grew up, you know, and really in any of the, you know, time off from school was spent time in the business. That was just the nature of it. You know, if you really wanted to see dad, that's what you had to do, actually. And the story I would share is, you know, it, it was a 24-7, 365 business, still is today. But unfortunately, back then, my dad was one of the guys that had to get up out of bed and go back to work. And, you know, in the middle of the night, the nice thing was he would scoop us up, his boys, throw in the car, and we, we were so excited to go. It was nice because people liked us little boys. They would actually feed us. We worked in a bagel place, you know, where they would cook the bagels and bread factories. My dad was not as thrilled about the whole thing, Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's awesome. I mean, I love hearing these stories. And I talk to a lot of family-run businesses. And actually, in season one, I talked to this gentleman by the name of Chad Peterman, who, you know, father had a similar business. And he did something very similar to you. You know, he kind of went out into the world. He saw the way things were like things were operating, you got a little bit more education. And in your case, you know, you got involved in what is now Nextar. And you recognize there were opportunities for you to get for you guys to, you know, be more entwined in the operations of the basement. So what was that like for you being the youngest brother in a chain of three and then coming and saying, I really think we should expand to these other trades. Like what was that experience like for you? Well, if my brothers would not be listening to this podcast, I could say share with you. Oh, they've heard it to their face. I'm just joking. The reality is I had to drag them and my dad up the hill, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, because they were really attached to status quo and, you know, it was good. And we had a successful business that was making money. 
But what I always share is that I realized that a lucky, lucky did realize at an early age that I was making a ton of money, but it was a ton of stress. And I was just going to be a really rich dead guy, which was never my goal at a young age. And so um, things had to change. And that's kind of what I saw. And I was lucky. You know, I, I found my allies outside the business that my brothers and dad would listen to. Guys like Dan Hollihan, who's a great heating guy. I mean, just an industry giant made a monstrous difference in my life as a good friend. And then I also, you know, was subversive. I did like, you know, what you do as a kid. If you don't like dad's answer, you go get mom, right? And so uh, I would tell my brothers that, you know, here's what dad had said. And hopefully that they would never check that that was the case. And so <laughs> I was really good at manipulating. But no, they, to their credit, they understood. One day, you know, really people go, where did all these systems come from? Where did this whole come from? And of course, there's a million events, but I remember the day like it was yesterday. I just woke, woke up one day and just said, I'm sick of being a hostage to my own employees. We had grown to 70 people at this point, Jackie. So it was not a small company. And I just walked in and my brothers, we, we sat in a very small office because my dad said, we don't make money with you in the office. So out the road you go. <laughs> and so uh, the reality was, I said to him, I'm sick of being a hostage and I bet you are too. And they looked at me and go, yeah. So what are you going to do about it in classic New York style? And I said to them, I don't know, but I'm good at figuring it out. I'll be back. And I, sure enough, I did. Dang. <laughs> and by figuring out, you went out, you found your mentors, you found allies, you questioned them, and you figured out, you know, what's going to work? What, what's the thing that we need to do? And you keep saying system and processes, which is essentially the core of your book, The Seven Power Contractor, and the one uh, motto that, you know, you kind of see echoed throughout the pages is more success with less stress. Can you tell me specifically in your family business, what was the stress you mentioned being, being held hostage by your employees? What was the stress that you guys were consistently feeling that you were trying to get rid of? Well, you know, we, we were always hoping to hire uh, what I call lightning in a bottle, you know, the magic person who could just magically make it all work. You know, mm -hmm. they're all a self-star They're they're neat, they're clean, they sell well, they could technically expertise, or even a bookkeeper that, you know, magically knew everything. And, uh, you know, once in a while you'll get lucky, but it's really hard to repeat lightning in a bottle. And I know because we tried for a very long time. <laughs> and so I find that was part of the other second speech, you know, that said there was a series of events. And I said, I got an idea. Why don't we start with good people and see how great we can get them with systems versus hoping to hire great people and giving them no systems or broken systems. And to my dad and my brother's credit, they bought in. To the tune of, you know, in the 90s, the first one of the big, big steps was creating the, uh, the operating manuals, which was a pretty monumental task. Now, I had tried like everybody else has tried, you know, to write stuff out. Jackie, it turned out to be looking like a law book, you know, section 1.3-5, see article 2.73. And, you know, it was awful. It got tossed in court, as a matter of fact. When I finally took my employer-employee book, you know, think about a book like that, walk into court thinking, I got this. <laughs> and, the, and the judge looks at it and he goes, the average person couldn't understand that. And by the way, how many meetings have you run with that? And where's the side-offs to it? And, and this is a great lesson, you know, the painful part of lessons. And luckily, I got that lesson really early. So if it's not in plain English and there isn't, you know, being taught and learned and buy-in, it isn't worth the paper that it's written on. And today it's not worth the digital screen that you're viewing. 
And so, yeah, it cost us about $150,000 to hire my friend Dan, the writer that we're talking about, run all these meetings because his brilliance was everyone affects everyone else at the company. And so we all have to sit at the table and understand that. And wow, what a big difference that makes because the thing about the manuals is they're integrated. So the CSR, which I call the triangle of communication, the CSR starts everything or breaks everything. They build all the sales momentum or they destroy all of it. Their ability to answer the phone and in the tone of their voice, convey that you have not interrupted my day. Because <laughs> that's what happens when, and by the way, go home everybody, be a customer, don't be you, and get on the phone and find out what it sounds like to get that attitude coming across. It's not what they say, it's how they say it. But capturing the right information, building, letting them know when the great tech comes, it's gonna be great. You know, how we, do we get paid at the time of service? All of the stuff, so by the time the tech shows up, he doesn't have to do that. And then handing it off to the dispatcher. And the dispatcher working with the service manager is maximizing the day so that we get the maximum billable hour efficiency. Because I don't know, I've been, all, I've been all over this country, man, like Johnny Cash said, and I can tell you, there is crazy bad traffic out there in the world. <laughs> so so uh, yeah, you know, it's just billable hours. Windshield time is a killer. But you know, maxing up the right talent to where you need to do, and then getting all that information out to the tech. Now, of course, software like Service Titan, of course, is great at all of that. And Service Titan does a great job of the things that really are you know needed to get done. That said, I still need to know what I need to do in the box that I occupy on the org chart. And that's really been the big problem. Is we didn't. <laughs> Sorry, by the way, Jackie. All of this is way funnier now. <laughs> not, not funny then, but way funnier now is we didn't have an org chart. We, all the, you know, the mandate was just go out, work, be busy. Hmm. So either two people were doing the same job or nobody was doing the job. And, you know, so I tell the story about an org chart. And of course, the org charts that I like and my org chart pretty much fits every contracting company out there because I've been doing this now for 18 years and it's very flat. It's not attached to the Oh, CIO, CEO, CTO, CFO, the alphabet suit. It's nice, your ego is, feels great. But for most of us, what are the boxes it takes to run your company? So I think of that as a bingo board. And then your job is to cover each one of those boxes with an operating manual. Now, some of them can be as short as 10 pages long. Mm -hmm. That has to do with a weird concept. Sorry, use another triangle, but it's really a pyramid. The pyramid is only as big and strong as you can want if the bottom of the period pyramid is strong and wide. Mm -hmm. So that's really the difference. So my philosophy is not top down. Mine is bottom up. So if you're the manager, your job first thing, I go to a lot of next door shops. I've been nicknamed the graduate school over the years. So, you know, they want to know what their managers do. What are the managers? What do the managers do, Jackie? And I say nothing, which really ticks them off. And I said, well, what I mean by that is their job is to make sure all the manuals for everybody that reports to them are right and that everyone is trained on them and can perform and occupy the box they're in today. You have the training to move them up so that they keep on going. And the goal, of course, at my own company and everywhere I've worked now is make it true that you offer a career, not a job, and then you become the employer of choice. I mean, you just said a whole 
bunch of stuff there, Al. That was really, really good. And I, I'm going to dig into every single part of it. The first thing I want to really call out to is, you know, as owners, you know, you mentioned, so this was in the 90s, and I want to make sure I have my timeline right. So we're in the 90s. It's you, your two brothers, and your dad at the business that still at this point is just doing heating oil. Is that correct? And we, ju we just tipped into, uh, it was in the mid-90s that we took on the plumbing gas. You know, I, I actually bought the company who a friend of mine. Oh, you uh, bought a plumbing the, company of your friend of yeah, your friend. Well, that, that's yeah. This is the funny part. We are big fans of acquisition. When I say oh. we, my family was mm. a big fan of acquisition, and the reason, Jackie, is New York City, where I was, is an area called Rockaway Queens, which is right along the water. And oh, because yeah. of urban renewal, it all got wiped out. Mm -hmm. So all of my customers moved there. And if I had not, my not me, my dad and my uncle had not acquired companies where they went to there would never have been a business by the time my brothers and I showed up. Oh, and so, yeah, yeah. And what was really cool about the whole thing is it really is one of the best ways to acquire and grow business because instead of the great marketing you can do now, I advocate being great at marketing. Don't, don't hear that, not that I'm not organic marketing is great, but when you know how to acquire the right way, Jackie, you are buying people that are trained to buy your services instead of a wish and a hope they'll see your marketing and go, oh yeah, let's call them. Mm -hmm. So in that way, you guys kind of followed your customers as they um, moved to Rockaway. Out of Rockaway into where they were going further down Long Island. As further down Long Island. Place. Yep, yep. Yep, um, very familiar with Rockaway. We almost moved there actually. Well, um, you you, you were, <laughs> probably came into the end of the story when it, it had sat from the mid 60s till about 1995 pretty much empty yes and then and there then was and then it was this big explosion so get out your history books and go way back to the late 80s early 90s no you didn't want to be in rockaway when the sun set oh no 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 uh but actually fun fact about all that new development in rockaway uh my father is a carpenter for new york city and he says that those houses are um those all those new houses are not that great uh <laughs> don't mean to blow up your spot dad he listens yeah. um okay so you mentioned how so this was the 90s you guys were following your customer base into long island that's how you were doing your acquisition strategy that is fascinating you had also acquired a plumbing business of your friend because you wanted more opportunities to get into your customers homes and you wanted and by doing by providing more services, you were able to do that. Yeah. One thing I loved that you said is we were looking for that lightning in a bottle candidate. And I'm <laughs> also right now reading the E Myth Revisited by Ken Goodrich and Michael Gerber, and they talk about the white uh, the the white knight on a horse who comes to save your business and is just great at everything. <laughs> and I just I find that 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 I feel like as people in the world, we're always just so eager for someone to just show us how to do stuff the right way. And part of the, the, the angst of being an adult is realize that no, realizing that knowing is coming to save you and you're shaking your head. So I'll allow you a moment to pause here and just elaborate on that. No, that's really true. Well, one of the most influential books was E-Myth and guess who recommended it to me in the early nineties? Ken? Ellen Rohr. Oh, Ellen. Nice. Ellen. Yeah. Ellen Rohr was a really good friend as was Dan. And they both said, well, they saw what I was doing. And they knew I was on a collision course. And they said, uh, you really need to stop, read this book. And Michael Gerber's book, E-Myth, really was you know, one of those light bulb moments for me in that it taught me this whole idea is that without systems, it, it was never going to be repeatable. And the other bad thing that I had, the two takeaways from that book was 
if you're always working in the business and never on it, nothing good is going to change for your business. And that's when I first really took that to heart. So it gave me the why I need to change and what needs to change and really nothing in the way of how. But I can tell you, I'm really good at how. Once I know what why and what is, I'll figure it out. And I did, of course. You know, um, the training systems, the staffing systems, sales systems, all the marketing systems, they're all system, but they were based out of this once I, the light bulb went off about what was missing, what was the source of less stress and more success, how to get and achieve that. That was one of those seminal books that put me on the right path. That's wonderful. So let's talk real quick about what you thought system operation manuals and systems and processes were. And you mentioned taking it to court and you kind of just skydived right over that. So I was like, I wrote it down in my notebook court and I underlined it twice. What happened? So did you, from what you just said, it sounds like you created this giant manifesto section 1.2-3BA and you were like, this is a a manual and sounds like you had a bit of legal trouble with employ with an employer or something or other. You took it to court thinking, I'm going to win this case. And the judge was like, what is this? So can you talk to me a little sounds bit about that? So much funnier when you say it. <laughs> can you tell me a little bit about that lesson learned? Yeah. So, so I went to court, I was a 25 year old and I'm smug thinking, you know, I got this big book and it's going to be great. Cause I was with the New York city union shop and, you know, in that book somewhere in there was whatever I was trying to defend myself against the employee that was dragging us into court. And he said, it's not in plain English. No one can understand it. It's too big. And are you running meetings? Can you prove you're running meetings? And you know, I just got shot down at every level you can get shot down. And once in a while, you're lucky in life to get a lesson like that, as painful, as miserable as it was, because you can tell I have not forgotten. <laughs> and so it set me on a path of that if it's not in plain English, and it's not being read, and they don't get a chance to get their fingerprints on it, you really don't get buy-in, which is, that's really the thing that people miss, I think, when it comes to operating manuals, is that, you know, could you write them? Probably. Will they be in plain English? Will they be, you know, bought? No. And I couldn't do it, and I'm pretty good, without help from a professional writer, and, and these meetings that, that's why the cost was where it was in today's dollars. And that, by the way, was only a fraction of what it is today in terms of all of the manuals and systems that are there in place. <laughs> we paid that off in two years. So you say paid that off. How, how much I did it cost you? $150,000. Cost us $150,000 to get our manuals written, rolled out in the meetings, all of the other stuff. We paid for that in two years because we were able to decrease callbacks, hmm. increase productivity on every one of our calls, we were able to capture more calls because the CSRs actually were good at what they were doing. So the conversion rates were way better. The other thing is we could put new people on the road. We always had plenty of calls. Actually, we were very fortunate, always were. We always had way more calls than we could humanly do in a day, which is nice because then we get to be selective about where we're going and what we charge for it. And so, but that still is very nerve wracking when you can't put other people on the road. And so, this was that foundational moment that allowed us to springboard forward. And that's really what made the difference is really taking care of that. The other piece too was New York City is really the Sioux City, not the Sioux City you hear about in Iowa because everybody's got a brother, cousin, friend. that can sue. So we were always being dragged in. There was always insurance claims and we really 
reduce that tremendously so that we could focus on new work. Got it. And yes, I can attest. I know many lawyers in New York. So you had these manuals, you took them to court, didn't work. You realized you had to revisit them. And earlier you mentioned that you don't see manuals as like this this gigantic scribe that is just covers everything. You look at it more as a bingo board. And even going back to, you know, your organizational chart, like and each bingo board has a piece and each piece has its own manual that can be as short or as long as it needs to be. But it has to be in plain English and it has to state the goal of the role. Like, what's your job? What are your responsibilities? What are you expected to do? And another thing that I found from your book, you know, when you refer to the seven powers, you talk about staffing power and you mentioned it earlier, you want to be a place that provides careers, not just jobs. In that little bingo board, you also have the knowledge that is, here's how you get to the next level. So talk to me a little bit about how you developed that process. Yeah, you know, it it came from, uh, I was 25 years old sitting in the office and people would be going at five o'clock at night. If they're at your door at five o'clock at night, which means it's their time, Jackie, there's only a couple of reasons that they're there. And the majority of it is I need a raise or I have to go or I found another job already and I'm going. What are you going to do about it? And so I felt like, again, I was a hostage being held up. And it rarely ever worked out where I was negotiating, you know, in the good faith. And even if I kept these employees, there was always a bitterness. Bitterness by me for that I got held hostage, especially like the heating seasons among us. And they knew it. I knew it. So now I was over the barrel. And the fact of the matter was, they were actually feeling taken advantage of is, why do I, a grown person, have to come to you to get a raise in my allowance? How is that fair? And so when I recognized it, it really was a a big changing for me, is I always saw things through my glasses this way. And it was only until I could get out of my chair and go sit in their chair, or take off my glasses and flip them around, that I could see it from their side. And once I immediately did see how humiliating that was to make them come and ask for their next raise, like a raise in allowance, I recognized I could address this, which is what are the objective standards you need to fill each and every next box? And what am I going to do to help you fill those next boxes? So come as an apprentice, which is the bottom of the org chart. Come as an apprentice, young and willing, no skills preferably, will provide everything you need. Prove that you've been here 60 days, can show up on time, clean and sober. You're going to go to class, which in our case was typically four to six months, get you out on your own truck. And if the manuals are this big, whoops, this big, you get about that much to go out and get trained on that. But you were trained on the manuals, on training curriculum, and you were trained in a hands-on training center. So it was like you were going to somebody's house to run that call from start to finish. So this is where I married the sales process, operational clean and neat to the technical process. And they're all built on operating manuals first and foremost, but then again, the sales process and then this other training so that you could go out. And then when you prove to me that you were out in the field, let's say six months to a year, I'll bring you back. And now I'm just gonna train you on the rest of the tasks that are in the manual that you did not get trained on before. Cause I wasn't gonna throw you to the wolves And for those who guys who are plumbers out there will get this is I'm okay with you fixing the sink, but you're not going to do a retile shower body job just coming out of class a couple of months in. So those are the kinds of things we held back until they could prove to us they could walk 
before they could run. Hmm. And what I really love about that process too is I think as human beings, we are always striving. I think innately human beings want to do a good job and achieve goals. And as long as you're a business, that if you are an employee of a business, if that business provides you with actionable steps that say, if you do X, Y, and Z, then we can do this, which could be either a raise or a promotion or whatever you want to do. They'll just It'll be a happier relationship. It'll take out the ambiguity of what do I have to do to impress my boss? What do I, what, what, how else do I have to, and all of this, like all of these stories we tell ourselves, all this like, you know, stress in our minds. I totally relate to that. And I don't think that just applies to contractors. I think that applies to businesses literally everywhere. I think you do. If I have time for a very quick story, I'll try to tell it quickly. Here's a good <laughs> illustration of what you were speaking to about objectivity and subjectivity. I was one of my many jobs. I was an install manager at my company. So I had five install crews a day. And one of the guys that I had trained, he was flipping pizzas when I first got him, had no skills and had risen to become a really good installer. And so I slide the window open back in the days when you had to hand out the paper for the instructions. I hand it to Bobby and I go, Bobby, I can't get there at 10 o'clock today. I can get there at two. Can you look over the instructions and make sure you got everything? He looks it over and goes, I got it out. I know what you want. So I show up at two o'clock and I'm down in the basement going. <laughs> and, and I drag him upstairs out to the truck so we're not in front of the customer. I go, what? What is this? This is nothing like what I said. He goes, oh, your brother Richie showed up and said, do it this way. Hmm. So what we realized in that awful moment is we didn't have a way of doing any of our work. And what happened was when Bobby and I first spoke for the first time is, Bobby wanted to do a good job, like you said, Jackie, but he didn't know what a good job is that's going to make me happy or make Richie happy or make any of the many ladies that were at the company happy, right? Because it was never defined in writing. It was never objective. And so I, he says to me, he goes, can I tell you something? I said, sure. What, Bobby? He goes, I used to think that you lay awake in bed trying to figure out how to ruin my day. And I started to laugh. He goes, what's so funny? I said, I used to think the same thing, Bobby, that you were up all night trying to figure out how to ruin my day. And what we both agreed is we will ruin each other's day to make our day better unless there's a rule or game to play. So one of the things I hate about bulleted job descriptions, I hate a lot of things about bulleted job descriptions, but what do you always see in a bulleted job description? You will be this, you will be this, you'll be this, and then there's the famous, et cetera. What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. So the manual, if you're a, hired as a customer service rep, CSR, you get this manual, do what's in this manual, and then you're off the hook, which was what Bobby coined the line, by the way. And when it got bought in by the, by the union, which was difficult, he passed the line around the whole country, do what's in the book, oh, company, sorry, do what's in the book, you're off the hook. <laughs> that, was the, that was the line. So it was true. If I didn't like what they did and it was in the book, tough, tough on me. I'll yeah. change it. But that was kind of it. So they got to get some fingerprints on it, Jackie, and that really makes a world of difference, as does meetings, really makes a world of difference. That, so you said it a couple of times now, getting their fingerprints on the job description and on the manuals. So, so I, I want to get to you retiring from your family business and going to the career that you're in now. But before we hop into that, how often should, should businesses be re revisiting their manuals and how should they integrate their employees in the development process? I had to question whether or not they really have manuals. 
most people have an employer employee manual, which they either created with their labor lawyer or they got it off the internet or the trade association they belong to. I don't even know that. Now I'm not discounting that. It's a really good CYA. You know, CYA? About jury, yes, I'll cover your <clears throat> you know what? anatomy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Cover your it. anatomy. And so that there's a value in that. And there's obviously tons of stuff that you need to know, but that doesn't help me. The technician manual tells me what to do from the time I wake up to the time I go to bed, other than turning the wrenches and screwdrivers. That's vitally important because that's where they mess up. The CSR, I know if I read the CSR manual, I know what my responsibility, I know how I affect the company, I know how I affect everything else, I know how to, you know, what my voice should be like, how I sound right on the phone, what scripts I use, how do I capture the information, how do I build a sales sense, how do I explain this stuff, so that I can fill my CSR box. There are no separate job descriptions. There are no job descriptions. Here's your manual. He's holding a book. Yes, that one. <laughs> this is your manual. Th this is what your job description is. By the way, this is a living document. So when the job changes, your job description changed. And so that's the, and here's what I always say about job descriptions. Even if you had a good job description, Jackie, mm -hmm. if I add one more bullet somewhere along the line, how do you feel as an employee? I feel you know, kind of taken advantage of. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. And so nobody likes, whereas I've already set the stages, if you're a customer service rep and you have your manual, that's your job description and know that it will change because it's a living document. Now it gets tweaked and edited, doesn't get rewritten. Mm -hmm. uh, things change. You know, like my, my manuals have gone through, I, I would say at this point, 35 to 40 different softwares really easy to edit. There's not a ton of keystrokes. Yes, some in the CSR. And, and of course, you know, Service Titan Mobile has actually made it really easy because my manuals today are set up for Service Titan and QuickBooks. Now, mm -hmm. before everybody out there gets excited, there's many ways to do Service Titan and there's many ways to do QuickBooks, but it doesn't matter. You put them up, you can easily edit them and mm -hmm. make it go. So th that's something that you can take care of. But the key thing here is about the fingerprints is so when we roll out the manuals, there's a process for them. You get, let's say you have a very big shop because it's different in big shops and little shops. So if you have a very big shop, you can't get 10 people to agree to anything. <clears throat> Think about your house of worship or uh, community meetings or anything else like that. You'll just be in, a, in the hell of trying to do this stuff over and over again. So you pick two uh, missionary people for each of these positions as necessary. Typically it's just the text. And you say, go home, read this all the way through, don't make any edits or changes, come back, then take a red pen and only write down what you hate or you think is wrong. And then we'll all get together and we'll go, and you try to pick two or three model texts there, uh, people I call missionary texts, that if they say it's good, the rest of them will fall in line. Hmm. So they get their fingerprints on it, we go through it. You have to do a little bit of horse trading, not a rewrite. But the implicit thing is if once we agree on it, they have to go back and sell it to the rest of the crew. And then when the crew sits down around the table, it's not like they don't get to get input, but they too only get, what do you think is wrong? What do you hate? And then in weekly meetings, after it's all been rolled out, we always do a page or two for every position at the company. Because if you don't, here's what's happening, Jackie. They said, I knew Al would get sick of this. He's given up. We, we don't have to do this anymore. 
Mm. But if you come to a meeting and you know they're reading a page or two every week, it stays in the culture. And that is where the real buy-in takes place. So integrating it into the culture, making it a constant component that's always in the background working and you're calling attention to it. They're not sitting on your, you know, they're not sitting in your office and gathering dust. They're living, breathing documents that you refer to constantly. Yes. And today, of course, everything is digital. The, the work they read and work on the tablets, you know, the guys in the field in the office, they have it on the desktop. You know, it's very little that you see in the way of paper at all anymore these days. So, I yeah. know. Thank gosh. Love those trees. Um, we've, been talking a, we've been talking a mile a minute, and I really want to get into the seven power contractor. But before I do, let's talk a little bit about once we'll, gla- we'll gloss over the whole 90s and you guys bringing on plumbing and other trades into your family business. You uh, famously gave your three years notice to the rest <laughs> of your family members. And I want to talk a little bit about first love the three years notice uh, tactic. I've actually given uh, in previous life, I've given two months notice before, which was- That's still pretty big, yeah. Still pretty big. But um, I want to talk to you about, you know, personally, what made you decide you wanted to get out of the family business and, you know, what you're doing now, like what your goal is right now. So try and tell us. So it was 18 years that I've been doing this business. So this is 21 years ago. And basically what happened is the business was finally running really well. And um, I knew that this would work at other companies like yours, mm-hmm. guys out there, listen. And uh, that's really what I went off to prove. I originally called the company Appleseed, like I was going to be Johnny Appleseed going out into the country. And people, I liked, I liked the name. I thought it was very clever. And people would ask me all the time, Jackie, I love that name, Appleseed. What do you do? Which is soul <laughs> crushing. So then I you know, finally got down to, well, what is it that I do? It is these seven powers. Mm-hmm. planning, operations, staffing, sales, sales coaching, marketing, and financial, seven things. And so that's when we renamed the company with my good uh, person who helped me write and edit my book. Is the Helena seven Boucher, power. The seven the power seven. contractor. And actually she helped uh, Tommy with, oops, Tommy's with, book. Home service with the Dad. home service millionaire. Yeah. 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 And which of course are is in that book as well as I am. And uh, it really, you know, crystallized what it is that I'm about. And this is, was again, a, an evolutionary thing, Jackie, is I, I just, when I was struggling, I figured there's gotta be a 7 million things I have to get right. <laughs> because if, if there wasn't 7 million things, I would already be, you know, successful and life wouldn't be this stressful. And the answer is no, there's seven things you have to master. The ones I just rattled off. Mm-hmm. Now, you'll spend the rest of your life getting good at it. But here's what I can share. I have worked with some of the best contractors in this country, not because they work with me. They were already good, like uh, Keith Pinkerton, Mr. Electric uh, down in Huntsville, got multiple shops, uh, Tommy Mello all around the country on A1 Garage. I could just rattle off a bunch of them. But the reality is, you know, they all get better with these systems that we bring to them, that these seven power systems. And now, of course, online, it's really the build your operating manual program because I'm not traveling all over the country anymore <laughs> like I used to. You know, uh, as I told friends, before COVID-19 came in, my butt was already getting too wide and the seats are getting too narrow. It's not a good match. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I get it, man. Like traveling, getting on a plane all the time is tough. But, you know, this operating manuals and, and your process of the seven power contractor, which is essentially mastering planning, operating, financial, staffing, selling, marketing, and sales coaching, 
It all goes back to creating these manuals and these systems and processes. And that's what empowers you to create uh, what, if we go back to the e-myth, a turnkey company, one that can run without you there. And I think like all the stuff in your book is super great horrible. I, I totally messed that up, but you know what I mean? Super awesome. And you know, you're I, I, I totally appreciate the comment. You don't have to clean it up. <laughs> and the clientele you have certainly speaks for it. So once you gave that three years notice at your family business, you dedicated your life to essentially sharing your knowledge and what you learned with contractors across America. Uh, well, across, I, I would assume in the world. That, from now it's Canada. Right? And yes, it is the world. For weird, because of the power of the internet, I'm, I'm big in Australia. Al is big in Australia. Go figure that one out. Oh, interesting. We actually have quite a few listeners in Australia. So yeah, I'm sure no, they'll that, enjoy yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. So in Australia, I've, I've got a whole like, you know, it's weird when you wake up and all of a sudden, you know, somebody's purchased a book or your manuals all over the, including UK. So it's just like, you know, it's, it's, it's all over the place. But yeah, where I've worked one-to-one is the U.S. and Canada. Here's one thing I would love to ask you, and I think your book does a good job doing it. You kind of went through your family's business woes. You scaled it up. You really got it working smoothly in the 90s, I would assume early aughts. What do you think is one of the key things that's changed now in 2020 and uh, you know, now we're going into the 2020s? Do you think there's anything really that, ch- that has changed now with the advent of technology and you know, the way our world works now? Yeah, just think about this for a minute. And fortunately, my clients understood this. As a matter of fact, I did a whole like, series, including with Tommy was one of them. And my partner, I, am, uh, I, didn't, I do have to give a plug for uh, Zoom Drain. <laughs> Zoom yes, drain. Zoom drain. Yeah, Zoom Drain is well, I'm partners with Ellen and my friend Jim Kennedy. Is he was actually a client. It's like that commercial. I like the company so much that I bought it. Well, yeah, because I worked there and I knew what they did. But they, um, I would say, the biggest change in a positive way is the power of technology. Now, this COVID thing was pretty messy, but yeah. here's what my guys could do. And um, when I say guys, I also mean women. Of course, I hope that's clear. Is that with this, you have tech, you know, technology to answer phones at home. Imagine if this had hit 10, 20 years ago. Dispatch from home. You had you know, text getting out on the road, and you were just like operating in a way that was totally inconceivable 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago. So I'm very impressed with the power of technology. And yeah, this is going to come off as a plug. I love Service Titan, <laughs> but it's, they've earned it. And now I've worked with some really great software and it's not a knock on anybody else. I think, you know, great software is only, as, it's like a tool in your toolbox. It's only as good as the technician who learns how to use the tool the right way. Mm-hmm. So there's tons of stuff in there. And so, you know, this, this has become an opportunity. And I know it sounds weird, but this is an opportunity because my people were working. If you're essential, you were working and think of how many companies were not. Think of the travel industry as just an example. It's been a great opportunity for us to just demonstrate to the world how vital we are. You think you have a mess now with COVID-19? Try not attending to your drains for a couple of months. That's a problem. And so all of these things are an issue. And I think it's just wonderful opportunity. And again, some of it's how I grew up. My dad did not spend a ton of money on marketing when we were really crazy busy. He kept it in a jar, if you will, and waited for times like this because this is when he would ramp up marketing, ramp up acquisition, because these people were falling to the wayside. And whatever marketing buys that we made, we just had enormous leverage with them. 
So I just think this is a great opportunity. Yeah, I totally hear you. And I agree with uh, technology too. It definitely makes work a lot easier and contactless work a whole lot easier. Yes, contactless work. That's not even conceivable 10 years ago. I know. All right, let's talk about more success and less stress. One thing that really stuck out to me in your book, in the forward especially, was this concept of contractor information overload. And I know it myself, you know, in my goal, uh, in my role at Service Titan to provide contractors with, you know, the opinions and the thought leadership ideas and processes of, you know, successful people like yourself. There's so much information out there as to how they should be running their business, how they should be selling, how many estimates they should provide, all of this stuff. So as someone who's worked with now, you know, many, many clients in the contracting space, how would you say, what would you say is the quickest way to prevent inaction by fear of making of doing the wrong thing. Does that make sense? It does. And uh, one of the biggest problems is procrastination. Oh, yeah. Hello. And, and, yeah. <laughs> I just wrote an article, a blog on procrastination because it's a subject that constantly comes up. And uh, when you procrastinate because of perfection or things of that nature, which is usually behind it, you want it to be born perfect. And that's just not going to happen. Getting it 80% to good and think that, you know what, I'll make it better tomorrow was really a leapfrog way ahead for me because I was a perfectionist. Most contractors are perfectionists. That doesn't mean we can stand in front of our business and say, oh, it's perfect. It's not. And so pushing yourself through is, again, and some of the other things that I think get in the way of contractors is they are so attached to winning every battle, they lose the war. And so I learned how to lose a battle to win a war. I could have ran out and done a call today, but staying in the office and being paying attention to the dispatch board helped me fix 200 calls rather than the 10 calls I could have done myself. And so these are some of the skills that you have to learn as an owner and really get attached. They're emotional more than they're really logical because I'm suspecting that you know it. But here's the issue. Is it a lack of information or is it a lack of implementation? And the answer is screamingly lack of implementation. Now, where do you get whipsawed is, are there, is there great advice on the internet? Yeah, and I put stuff out on the internet. But the lens that you use to look at it is gotta be really well-defined. How do you get all of these pieces to fit together? And the answer is in many cases, they don't. They're actually contrary. And so I use the uh, thing about, uh, would, you buy, would you build your dream car with a Ford chassis, a Toyota engine, Hyundai seats? You know, no. It wouldn't be that way. But if you have a plan in place about, you know, the goals and to find that way and the action steps you need, I always talk about working on the right thing at the right time, the right way. So that's the master project down to your top 30, down to your top five. Then when information comes in, you can ask yourself, how does that make this go? And so that's the best prism that you can view how to get that better. Does that answer, Jackie? Yeah, it does. It's basically, and I think when you talk about the prism and the lens, you really are talking about your first and most important power, which is your planning power, um, which is what are my goals and what are the things I need to do to take me there? So going back to your example of, you know, the owner slash sometimes contractor, maybe in a small business, say a call comes up, all right, new customer from what the CSR found out, there's potentially uh, an opportunity for a new install. Oh man, I really want to get it. 
but you know, in the last week we've gotten like 10 not so great reviews on Google from this one like technician. What is the better, what action do I take? You know, my, my mind and my body says like, always hustle, always be busy. But what really is the issue here is there's an, there's a whole other issue that's happening that also needs your attention. So you have to think about what's the better strategy for the company. You might not sell that job, but if you take the steps now to improve your reputation and improve what your technician is doing incorrectly, you could, you know, quote unquote, win the war. Yes. That is the best way I've heard to describe it. But, you know, this process of master projects, all your great ideas, projects and habits, whittling it down to the top 30, either fixes the biggest problem or challenge or greatest chance to grow and be profitable, down to your top five. And if every week, no matter how busy you are, I don't care how busy you are. Put a meeting with me for Sunday or whatever day that you want to protect to spend with yourself to work on the top five. Because if they made it to the top five, you said they will either fix the biggest problem or challenge or give the greatest chance to grow and profitable. There is nothing, nothing. I'm going to be millennial here. You know, <laughs> nothing. Sorry, baby boomer. Nothing that's going to be more important than doing that. Yeah. 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 Um, and in terms of we have a couple other things in your book I want to touch into, but going into the main goals, you mentioned like what's going to make me more profitable, what's going to help me grow. When you identify those top goals, are they truly always unique to the owner's, to the individual owner's goals, or are there some staples that you always look at? Does that make sense? Yeah. So when I come in, I already have a list of about 125 when I was doing one to ones, and now it's very selective. But you know, when I do those, it's 125 to 150 things that are projects and habits. It doesn't mean every one of them is going to fit you. You may have already started that. So let's say you rebranded your trucks. You went away from vans that don't fit and you have the higher trucks that people can work in and do more. You've already started to cross train people to do multiple trades because a lot of times, Jackie, I walk in and they go, we have an awful dispatch problem in a multiple trade shop. And the answer is you don't. You send somebody to a far distant place to do a plumbing call, they fix the drip. Across the street is a no-heat call, but they're not trained to do it. So mm. the plumber has to go all the way back, and now a heating guy has to go all the way there. Whereas if they were cross-trained, they could handle that whole area. But it looks like a dispatch problem, and it's not. So I'm all about the cause and not about the symptom. Hmm, interesting. Okay, cool. In the book, you talk about your meeting manifesto, which I absolutely love, and I'm going to try and implement at my in my personal work. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your suggestion for meetings? Because obviously, when you set systems and processes, when you set goals, you need to track them. What gets? Uh, what's that one? Um, what's your attention? What you put your attention to? Yes, yes that, what and you also think? you can change what you measure, or something like that. Yes, both, both of them are yes. absolutely correct. Those are really good ones. But so, yes. how do you prevent meetings from just taking on your life? Well, you know, that's most of us hate meetings because we associate them with what I call donut meetings, which means I come to a place, I eat a donut, I drink some coffee, and next week I'll be back talking about the same thing because nobody ever did anything. And there's no accountability for these meetings. Or like in our case, my brothers and I, we never ran a meeting until somebody, you, Jackie, messed up. <laughs> and now all the rest of you have to sit here and we go through this list of interminable things that you've done since the last time we had a meeting six months ago. So these are daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, yearly meetings. And people go, well, that's going to cost money. Your mistakes by not having meetings 
It's costing you way more money, my friends. And if you have systems like manuals and training, you're going through those and getting better every day, every week, every month. And so meetings really make a difference, but good meetings is the difference. Having a short agenda and staying on that agenda and learning how to do that. Somebody taking notes, because if you put 10 people at a meeting, I guarantee you 10 are listening with their own filters, which means their ears. And none of them heard exactly the same thing. So having a short recap is really, really important. So these are some of the things sitting around a table, if it's a discussion, or if it's teaching, I'm up at the podium and you're in the seats. So positionality, I tell you my meetings are really important. And then I stick you on a broken chair in a room that's 95 degrees out and the light is blinking. How important is that meeting, Jackie? <laughs> Not very important. Yeah. So there's these 10 meeting guidelines, which I'm happy to share, but you know, it's, it's really actually my, on my website, we just gave a jumpstart guide that has a lot of these things that we're talking about today. So if they get to, uh, to my website, which is number seven, powercontractor.com, just look for the pop-up jumpstart and do that. And I guarantee you'll be in better place. But yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Short, frequent meetings on topic beat the heck out of long, interminable, wasted meetings. I agree. You also talk about something called knowledge syndrome, which I highlighted because I'm kind of a rescuer pig. So can you talk to me a little bit about... <laughs> well, first what... of all, thank you. <laughs> Time out. <laughs> no, no. Here's my heart. Oh, he, he, I, he's giving I me a little heart. Yes, because I recognize you as being one of us. Yeah. What she's referring to is I was out in a truck and um, my friend Dan, we were running to a job and he was kind enough and I'm very lucky to have him in my truck. And he, he always would hold up the truth mirror to me. Mm. And so what I mean by, so he held up the truth mirror. So what he meant was, now, please be kind, everybody. This was a long time ago. The two-way radio was calling for me. My beeper on my waist was going off. And my cell phone, which was <clears throat> the size of a bread box, was ringing. And he laughs and he looks at me and he goes, you think that's normal, don't you? And in that moment, what I said to myself is, yeah. Yeah, that is normal. I'm really angry at them for doing this to me. And two seconds later, the next thought to my head was, look how important I am. I'm indispensable. This yeah. place would fall apart without me. And so I realized who I was. I enjoyed being a rescuer. I enjoyed being a fireman. And I also liked being a knowledge pig. You don't know that? Come see me. I'll help you out. <laughs> Yeah. And so this whole thing that you talk about in your book is that owners tend to hoard knowledge, right? And be it because they enjoy, like you and I, being the person that has that the omnipresent narrator of the business, or be it that, you know, they've been taught that you shouldn't give too much information because you don't want to show your cards, which is a horrible culture to have because you automatically put yourself at the top of the, you know, the pecking chain is essentially just by not empowering your employees with knowledge, you are robbing them of opportunities to take accountability, to, you know, find new and faster, more efficient ways to do things. And it's essentially becoming like almost a business dictatorship <laughs> where, you know, they can only act with the information that they have. And if you don't give them any, they're not acting. You're the choke point. Exactly. Yes. And also there's no reason to take initiative. Everybody said, why don't they take initiative? Well, why should they? Because you always know best, which is why when we put the manuals together, Richie and I had to agree is this is how we do it. 
put it on the page. So a very quick story watching the time here is we had agreed, spent all this money. Dan was the moderator and he goes, you know, whatever it is, we're going to come up with one thing. It's going to be objective. So we're well through it. It's something we hit on a procedure and Richie starts saying, well, use your best judgment. And I let it slide the first time, Jackie. And then he says, use your best judgment again. And I went up to him like nose to nose. And I said, best judgment, Richie. You don't really mean their best judgment. You mean your best judgment as if they were a mind reader and they're not. Yeah. I said, they're never going to do it your way. So you're going to have to spit it up as to what you mean right here objectively. And to Richie's credit, he took it. And then yeah. both of us went out to eat. <laughs> <laughs> and Richie, by the way, is your middle brother, right? Richie's the middle brother that's still there today. Yep. Got it. Um, finally, one more question on your book, then we'll go into some rapid fire questions. Okay. You have a whole chapter that's dedicated on born to sell, parentheses not, where you mentioned that, you know, we have this idea that everyone can sell. And I'm actually, the reason I'm interested in this is because I'm trying to be a better salesperson myself. And I want to learn how you learned that one, sales isn't intuitive, and two, how you got better at them. You know, and, and one of the great things is I had to teach others to be good at sales. So if you want to get good at something, become a teacher of it, right? You just have to be one page smarter than somebody else. So <laughs> um, my dad was intuitively a great salesperson. You know, he, he really was a great listener, empathetic, and, you know, he really was, and he wasn't, he was tireless. He was not pushy. He was persistent. And so uh, he was a good model, but he spoke like this. He was very quiet. He was short. And, you know, this is the way that he spoke. So I figured, well, I'll, I'll just do and mirror the same thing. And I was awful <laughs> because, because I tried to, no, it was not me. And then so I did, you know, I also had to do door-to-door -door sales, like, you know, knocking on doors. Well, you learn how to get fast to getting to the point when you do that. But I was spending time selling, looking at my shoes, which is the most awful thing you can do. Because you don't have to make eye contact, smile. These are basic things. So I took some sales training and I really got better at it. But it's a science. And I have taught so many people who didn't think of themselves as, as people that sell. And what I said to them is, okay, just back out of this for a minute. You don't think you're a salesperson in life? Because I bet you convinced somebody to do something. Do you have a significant other? I don't think they just magically appeared. You did some sales along the way. And so we do sell, we sell in different arenas, but really the biggest thing is people's thing that, that um, oh, he's a good talker, that'll make him a good salesman. The answer is exactly opposite. The best salespeople in this country for decades have always been people that see themselves as a servant and also ask great questions and then shut up and prove to the other person that they are listening. Now. Once I got over shy, as you can all tell in this podcast, is that I like to talk. And the problem was, Jackie, I didn't know when to shut up. So actually, one time I was doing a sale. Again, it's funnier now. I was doing a sale. And the person says, great, when can you start? And I go, we'll get to that. Let me, let me, let me keep going. <laughs> it's not in my script. I still have two so, more so, 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 so We have another three pages we have to go through. Hang on. So actually what my point of it is, is that um, for me, I learned how to have some great questions that got them talking to me. Because until I understand what's important to them, I can't serve them. And so asking really good questions, now you get to pick three really great questions. Because I didn't come sign up for an inquisition here. You can ask me three great questions. So I always used to ask, well, all things being equal, Jackie, how long do you envision yourself being in the house? Because that kind of was what I call a gateway question. 
And so those were things that were helpful. And then I would write their answers down because the only words that matter when it comes to sales is what they say, not what you say. Yep. I think that's great. Uh, and definitely lesson learned, but I would also say lesson learned because you can always get better at something you're not good at right now. Yes. Yes. So true. That is excellent. Yes. I'm definitely trying to sell. It's definitely a, a quality that I think is always, always undervalued and actually does take a lot of skill. So uh, I have some rapid fire questions for you, but before we get to that, I want to give you the opportunity to tell the folks at home a little bit more about where they can find you, plug anything you want to plug. I know you're not trying to fly around as much, but you've got a great website and book. So you, I'll give you the time now to say that. Number seven, powercontractor.com. That's where I put all the information in there. There's some really great stuff like blogs. And yes, they're my blogs, but they're well-written because I've been around and lucky enough to meet some great mentors in life and shut up long enough to listen to what they were telling me. And so, yeah, I have that. And of course I have the book, which I'm holding up, Seven Power Contractor. Mm -hmm. It's really small. It's very short, purpose. yeah. Yeah, I did it on purpose. My philosophy has always been is a business book is more than 150 pages. I wonder why. Because you should be able to say it in 150 pages or left. And fortunately, my editor, when I mentioned before, Helena, you know, did that. And so that was Seven Power Contracts, really great. The great news is Audible is how people listen to me way more because you're stuck in your truck or at your desk. I don't care which way you do it, but it is really foundational. And I'm not saying it again because I wrote it, but it really changed my life and it's changed the life of the people that I've been lucky enough to work with in one way or another is the seven powers and understanding that there are not 7 million things you got to do. These seven things are really good. Now, if you're ready, then there is build your operating manuals where you can get a part it is so much easier to be an editor than a creator. Plus it's much more than words on a page or digital device. So these lessons, they're video lessons as if I'm coming to your shop, I'm a virtual tour guide, if you will, to take you through step-by-step step as you climb this hill because it is the number one most important power you got to get going if you want to change your company. Systems and processes. There you go. And manuals. Okay, Al, got some rapid fire questions. And I will also say book is, I did not finish it, but I definitely, uh, I definitely bounced around and it's super digestible, really great, solid information in there. Uh, so highly recommend. And thank you Thanks. as always for being a you know, service Titan advocate and, you know, working so well with so many of our customers really appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Five rapid fire questions. Don't think, just answer. How do you take your coffee? Uh, with uh, half and half. If you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would it be? Um, Albert Einstein. What's the number one thing you're trying to learn more about right now? Uh, you know, yoga. Oh, if money weren't an object, you had access to unlimited resources. What's the number, what's the first thing you would do? Charity. What's the number one thing every contractor must do right now in order to run a successful business? You have to learn how to work on the business, not just in it. Love it. Love the rapid fire questions. I didn't realize you were a yogi. I'm a yogi too. Oh, I've been a yogi ever since I moved out here. I, it was started 18 years ago when I couldn't sit on the floor. And uh, yeah, so I stumbled into this place. She's still my yoga, main yoga teacher. And um, it was the longest class I ever had in my life, Jackie. She made me sit on the floor, which was impossible. My back was shot from the trade, proved that I worked in the trade. And um, she said, I want you to sit on the floor for an hour and a half and breathe in your stomach because I was a chest breather, so much mm -hmm. tension and stress. And it was the longest, best class of my entire life. It really just put me on a better path. 
I love that. We'll have to catch up off mic and talk a little bit more about yoga. Okay. But um, we'll again, Al, I want to thank you for being so gracious with your time and really for all these lessons that you've shared with our toolbox for the trades listeners. And uh, I'll include all those links in our show notes and everyone can find you. And I hope you and I get to meet in person one of these days. Sounds great. Hey, everybody. Bye. Be good. Ever wonder how much your business is worth? So many owners ask that question and have no idea where to turn for an answer. In just a few clicks, Service Titan's new Service Business Valuation Calculator can give you an easy and free estimate of the current value of your business. Whether you're thinking about selling your company or looking to track growth, check it out now. Visit servicetitan.com slash value. Again, that's servicetitan.com slash value. See how much your business is worth today. Want to network with fellow service entrepreneurs and former guests of this podcast? Join our private Facebook group, Toolbox for the Trades, to get immediate access to the best tips, tricks, and tactics from fellow service entrepreneurs. Visit facebook.com slash groups slash toolbox for the trades, or click the link in our show notes to join. See you online.